When I was a young man of 17, my first proper job was in a travel agency where I worked for four years. It was a great way of acquiring admin skills and learning how to serve the public. At that time, one partner of every travel agency in the world was the iconic firm Thomas Cook & Son. Cook's was the leading travel firm, the name above all names in the travel world. They'd existed since 1841 and nobody could top them. The reputation in the travel world was solid gold. And yet we know what happened. In September 2019, Thomas Cook & Son ceased trading because they got into colossal debt. And no matter how great their reputation had been up to that time as the most vibrant travel firm, that reputation was not enough to save them. As one historian has said, the brand which had survived two world wars had seen the reigns of six British monarchs, the rise and fall of the Soviet bloc, and not least the invention of flight, on which they so heavily depended, was now finished. No matter how monumental the reputation had been, it wasn't enough to save them. And here in Revelation chapter 3 verses 1 to 6, we're introduced to a church which had been so prominent among the churches of Asia Minor, but it was now living merely on its reputation. It was a pale reflection of what it had been. As Abraham Lincoln said, character is like a tree and reputation is like its shadow. The shadow is what we think of it. The tree is the real thing. The Lord of the church saw the church at Sardis as it really was, a dead church walking. And he who holds the sevenfold spirit of God and has authority over all the churches says to them, I know your deeds. I see you as you really are. And I can see right through you. You have a reputation of being alive, but all the time you're really dead. And we'll understand why that's a good description as we go through it. The state of the Sardian church can best be understood by comparing it to the city of Sardis itself. Sardis had been the wealthiest city in the province of Lydia. It was located ideally for east-west trade. So it had been a very well-to-do place uh, with a great reputation for wealth. In fact, and I only learned this when preparing this sermon, that the first coins in the world were minted in the year 550 BC by King Croesus of Sardis. Uh, and he did that from gold and silver found in the uh, river below. I say below because the ancient city of Sardis uh, was located on a hill, much like Edinburgh and Edinburgh Castle, which was, is, was steep on three sides with only one way in and out of it. By the time the Apostle John received the revelation, however, the glory of Sardis was waning and the city was living only on its reputation. It was decaying and diminishing. In fact, in AD 26, its application to build an imperial temple of Rome was rejected in favour of its rival Smyrna. And from that time on, it was recognised in Asia Minor that to be a Sardian was to be more concerned about image and reputation than about substance. The place was dying, but it refused to accept it. And that was reflected uh, quite, uh, in, a, in a, quite a, a fascinating way 
by the church itself in Sardis. Let's examine in what ways the church resembled the city and how the Lord of the church dealt with it. Let's look at that under two main headings. First of all, Jesus condemns the majority and Jesus commends the minority. First of all, then, Jesus condemns the majority at Sardis. Why? Because they had the appearance of life. Jesus said, you have a reputation of being alive. A very socially active church. How would we compare it to an outwardly active church today? What kinds of features would you expect from such a church today? Well, perhaps a church which had good numbers, perhaps a well-appointed meeting place, powerful speakers, great singing, signs of activity, lots going on, and perhaps a church also which was making some kind of impact on the community around it. The point is, though, that although these things are things that one would hope for in a church, they do not of themselves prove that a church is alive in the sight of Christ. Jesus says this to the Sardian church, I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. This means that in God's sight, there were key elements lacking in their service to God. Now, of course, none of us of ourselves has what it takes to produce obedient service to the Lord. We all depend on his grace to make our works complete in his sight. So what was it that was fundamentally lacking about the majority of the church at Sardis in the sight of God? that it took a special warning from the Lord of the church. Now, the key to understanding what the majority at Sardis were getting wrong is found in what the minority were getting right. We read in verse 4 that there were a few, there were a few people in Sardis who had not soiled their clothes. And the implication is that the majority in the church there had soiled their clothes. Not physical clothing, obviously, but spiritual clothing before God. God sees us as clothed uh, in acceptable clothing before him or unacceptable. Note that wherever the imagery of clothing and the soiling of clothing is used in scripture, it usually has a reference to righteousness or holiness or a lack of these. We'll deal with these, first of all, then, with a lack of righteousness. In Isaiah chapter 61, we read that the prophet Isaiah rejoices, he says, because the Lord has clothed him with garments of salvation and arrayed him in a robe of righteousness as a bride adorns herself. And of course, this is very reminiscent of this, the beautiful picture of Christ's love for his church. Uh, which Paul in Ephesians says that the Lord Jesus will present to himself as a radiant church, a church without stain or any blemish, but holy and blameless, righteous and holy. But notice that only God himself can give his people that robe of righteousness. Isaiah said, the Lord has given to me that gar- these garments of salvation, that robe of righteousness so that he could stand before him. We cannot fabricate our own righteousness. And what is it that gives that robe of righteousness its pure whiteness in God's sight? Revelation chapter 7, 
verse 14 gives us the answer. We read there that, uh, that God's people have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That is to say, it is, this, it is the substitutionary sacrificial death of Jesus on our behalf which transfers to him our sins and transfers to us his righteousness. And of course the righteousness of Christ is as righteous as it could be, as any righteousness could be before God, because it is the righteousness of God himself. And these benefits are only realised to us by the dependence of faith in the crucified Christ. But this is, however, only what a very small minority at Sardis had uh, shown. There's the spiritual clothing of the majority was soiled, polluted, meaning that they were not trusting in the sacrificial death of Jesus for a righteous standing before God. And again, as prophet Isaiah says, if we do uh, depend on our own deeds for our standing before God, for acceptance with him, then as Isaiah says, all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags in God's sight. Like so many uh, churches of our own day, the Sardians had ceased to depend on the life-changing gospel of a crucified saviour and were depending instead on their own respectability and reputation. That reminds me of a little parable I once heard about a church and its notice board outside the church where was quoted a scripture from the New Testament, we preach Christ crucified. But over time, the branches of a, of a tree which were overhanging the board uh, began to grow out and grow over the board and bit by bit the message was gradually obscured. First of all, the word crucified was covered so that the notice board read, we preach Christ. And that could be typified of the, the message of the cross becoming gradually obscured. And then as the leaves grew more, it was, we preach. Until at last, as the leaves of the tree grew almost over the notice board, the only word that could be seen was, we. It was all about us. The question is, as we apply this, what are we at Charlotte Chapel trusting in for our standing uh, before God? Is it the legacy of a congregation since 1808? Is it a well-appointed building? Is it hundreds of supporters? What is it? Is it something uh, which, we, uh, which we depend on for acceptance with God? We, th we think God looks on us kindly because of this or that factor. But what we can say is this, that whatever it is, all of these are as nothing compared to trusting in the faithfulness of a heavenly father who gave his only begotten son for our sins. Are we able to say, as we so often sing, in Christ alone, my hope is found. So there was a, a lack of righteousness from God in the church at Sardis. There was also a lack of holiness. Now, as churches were planted throughout the Middle East in the first century, Christians were warned by the apostles not to become contaminated with the values and lifestyle of the pagans and idol worshippers. The call was to live lives of holiness and dedication to the Lord. 
As Paul makes clear in 2 Corinthians, you who believe in Jesus are the temple of the living God. God wants to live with you and therefore separate yourselves from the lifestyle of the pagans, come out from among them and be separate and live holy lives. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 6. However, in Sardis, the Christians were living lives which were little different from those of the pagans. There was a large temple in Sardis to Kibele, who was the fertility goddess of the Lydians. And to show you how close the Christians had got to the worshippers of Kibele, the Christian church was there was built into the very walls of the pagan temple. In fact, to enter the church, you had first to go through the pillars of the pagan temple. And you can still find that church today. This is not some fanciful thinking. You, if you go to Turkey today, to the to this little town of Sart, you see the, how, it's, how it's become uh, from Sardis to Sart? That's how much the Sardian church had failed to separate themselves from the god, ungodly world around them. You can see these archaeological, archaeological finds today if you go there. An interesting, another interesting point is that the goddess Kibele was in fact the same personage as the goddess Asherah of the Canaanites, whose worship was a central reason why God's people Israel had gone into exile. And I'm not saying that the Sardian Christians were actually worshipping Kibele, but through their relationship with the pagans in Sardis, they were saying, as much as to say, well, keeping ourselves distinct from the pagan world doesn't really matter. They were like salt which had lost its taste. They'd compromised. And they were no longer like salt to the earth or a light for the world. This should challenge us. This should challenge us to asking, uh, are we actually challenged by this? How distinct is our lifestyle? Remember, our lifestyle is our passive witness to Christ in the world. In what areas might we be compromising? Not only a lack of righteousness and a lack of holiness, but thirdly, because they lacked righteousness from God and holiness before the world, the church at Sardis had a lack of active gospel witness. Again, the key to this is through reading what Jesus says of the godly minority at Sardis. Of them, he says, I will acknowledge their names before my father and his angels. You see that in verse 5. Now, there's a clear reference here to what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 32 and Luke 12, verse 8. If you take these passages together, they read, Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge them before my Father and the angels of God. In those passages, Jesus was referring to evangelistic witness, testifying to the truth of Christ before an unbelieving world. Now, the minority at Sardis were commended for this, but by clear inference, the majority were not. The church was no longer to prepared to witness for Christ to that unbelieving world. In fact, they were bedfellows with them. They knew that to the large Jewish community at Sardis, the gospel would be a stumbling block, and they knew that to the pagans it would be considered foolishness. And why witness to someone of whom you have no personal knowledge. 
No personal relationship. Interestingly, there is no record of the church at Sardis suffering any persecution for faithful witness to Christ, such as the church at Smyrna had suffered. In fact, perhaps, just to speculate a little bit, perhaps they held interfaith conferences with their neighbours, the pagans and the Jews, as one big happy religious community. In fact, the Jews also, in their synagogue, in the centre of it, also had part of a statue to Kibele, which shows how far the Jew, their Jewish neighbours had departed from their roots. At any rate, the Sardis church failed to acknowledge Christ's name before men as the only saviour, and that put that church into a terminal condition. And we need to ask ourselves, we need constantly to challenge ourselves as to how we too are witnessing for Christ. That is why we are here Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But you will not enjoy God unless you seek to glorify God through your life. And we do that, as Jesus said, through testifying for him. You shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's why we're here, folks. There's no other reason for us existing other than this. To be a witness to an unbelieving world that Christ's people, Christ's lost sheep, might be gathered into his fold. That's why we're here. That's the purpose of your life. So uh, Jesus didn't give that, that great commission to a few super saints. It was for every, to every Christian for all time. So how are we as individuals witnessing to our neighbours, our workmates, our unsaved relatives? Obviously, we need to be discerning and uh, appropriate about how and when we do it. No one said that being a Christian meant that you forget your manners. But the main point is that however we do it, we are to be distinctive, we are to be clear in witnessing to Christ's grace in our lives, and not to fudge and not to compromise when we feel pressure from the world around us to conform to their social and religious norms, as the church at Sardis did. Yes, this church had the appearance of life, but we move on to consider this. There was also the imminence of death. You have a reputation of being alive, says Jesus, but you are dead. Now, it's an awful thing for a church to hear from the mouth of Jesus that in his eyes, they're as good as dead. And he says to them, wake up, strengthen and remain uh, what remains and is about to die. Wake up and strengthen. Now at this point I'd like to share with you something which came to me very powerfully as I considered these words of Jesus. It was actually an experience I had um, at the age of 17 and an experience through which I believe I almost died. What you might call a near-death experience as the popular expression is. It's the most horrifying thing that has ever happened to me. And in fact, some nights I still have flashbacks to that moment. What happened was this. It was quite simple and it could happen to anybody. I went to bed as usual that night. Nothing was amiss. However, by 2.30 in the morning, my body had curled up into a fetal position. Quite an extreme fetal position. Really curled up. Sadly, it was not, an, on, not at the head of the bed, but right into the centre of the bed, under the covers. 
When I say the covers, I don't mean like a duvet. This was before the days of the duvet, believe it or not. Uh, those of us who are a little older can remember those, uh, those heavy blankets uh, tucked over t uh, a sheet and tightly folded in at the side of the bed. So that's where my body was under all that. About three or four blankets as well as a sheet. Now, uh, I don't know how long I'd been in that position, but I slowly became aware of some, a very hot and suffocating feeling. Now, the thing is, what must be understood here is I was not awake. Uh, because of being under there for such a length of time, I, I was suffering from hypoxia. I'd been breathing in my own carbon dioxide for a long time, and I, I could not wake up. I was somehow aware that, of what was happening, but I could do nothing about it. It was like being in a kind of airless, locked-in syndrome. The oxygen starvation to my brain meant I wasn't fully conscious, so I couldn't send the signals to my body so that my arms could push the blankets off. Well, I know you'll be wondering, well, what happened? How did you survive? In the midst of my semi-conscious paralysis, a thought came into my head. It was this thought, uh, wiggle your big toe. And I, I did. After a few seconds, I was able to wiggle my big toe. The next thought was wiggle your foot. And I did. And after that was wiggle your leg. I began to wiggle my leg and then shake my leg. And then came the thought, push up. And very slowly, I was able to do that. I can tell you that surfacing above those bed covers was like breaking through the surface of water after nearly drowning. I was hit by such a surge of cold air and was able to breathe again. And I'll never forget that moment. I'll never forget that experience. Now, I, I was not a Christian at the time, and I did realise, I, 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 in fact, I think that experience was one of many factors which God used to show me my need of him. And in fact, I, I, with horror, I think that if I had died that night of suffocation, I do not have any grounds to believe that I would have gone to be with Christ. I would have been lost because my, my uh, experience of Christ as my saviour did not come until six months after that moment. And I realised that the only way I could have helped myself out of that situation was by God's help. It seemed that even then he had a purpose for my life. Now, the spiritual torpor that the church at Sardis was in was much like that. They had to wake up, but they couldn't by themselves. And a message came to them from Christ to the effect, I know all about your situation, even although you yourselves are oblivious to it. And I'm telling you now that if you don't wake up, you're going to die. The verb used here for wake up is not the word meaning wake up from sleep. That's, that's, it's a different word. Rather, it's a verb which means become full of, fully aware of and alert to your situation because soon it will be too late. And let's apply this a wee bit. There are, there are some churches in our day which are like Sardis, are in some kind of spiritual haze perhaps very busy churches, busy with many, many things, uh, like Martha in her kitchen, for example. And yet, they are unaware of what Christ is saying to them. They're, of, they're often busy, but they're churches which have lost the gospel. 
Amy Carmichael, who was a missionary to church to China, compared such churches to a group of people sitting in a circle making daisy chains, while the people behind them are falling over a cliff into hell. And uh, every now and again, as a shriek or a scream goes out, as another one goes into hell, one of the people making the daisy chains turns around, but another of their group says, now look, come on, get back to, to, to this work we're doing here. This is so important, making these daisy chains. Don't be distracted. The Lord Jesus can only tolerate the existence of such churches for so long. They have no gospel, certainly not the gospel of the Bible. And eventually they will shrivel up and they will die. So from having the appearance of life and being warned about the imminence of death, there comes to this church the call to repent. Wake up and strengthen becomes remember and repent. So after calling them to wake up, Jesus tells them to remember what they've received and heard and to obey it and repent. He's reminding them of the gospel they heard at the beginning. Now, we, we don't know, like, uh, unlike so many other of the churches, for example, planted by uh, the, the apostles, uh, Paul, Barnabas, Silas, and so on, uh, we don't know exactly how the gospel came to, to Sardis. We, we, we could speculate about that. Perhaps it was after the day of Pentecost, because on the day of Pentecost, there were, there were people there, God-fearing Jews. Uh, we're all told from every, every nation under heaven, including Asia and another one called Phrygia, Lydia itself is not specifically mentioned, but I think it's in the general area of Asia. And so there could well have been people from, the, people from that part who heard the gospel in, through Peter's sermon, the gospel of repentance and faith for the forgiveness of sins, and then went back after Pentecost to their own country, to Sardis, and planted a church there. We don't exactly know, but that is one of the, one of the um, most likely uh, possibilities. And this is what Jesus is now calling upon to remember. Remember that gospel. Remember that this gospel came to you fresh. The, the, the news of, of a crucified saviour. That you no longer needed to try to work for sins to be forgiven or anything like that. You need only to have faith in God with the faith of your father Abraham. God who justifies the ungodly. And Christ deals with them in a very similar way to the church at Ephesus, to which he said, repent and do the things you did at first, because if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. It's a very similar message. And there came with this a warning. He says, if you don't wake up to your situation, I will come to you like a thief, and you do not know at what hour I will come. This reminds us of what Jesus said uh, in Matthew 24. He said, if a homeowner had known exactly when a thief was coming, he would have been alert and watchful and not allowed his house to be broken into. So the Sardis church is being warned of the loss that will be theirs. And it's very possibly that they're being reminded here also of something that had happened at Sardis in 549 BC when uh, the city was besieged by Cyrus of Persia and King Croesus thought he was safe and secure on with this, uh, this city of its three steep sides and its only uh, one way in, which was well guarded. What he did not realise was that Cyrus's soldiers had found a way up the north blind side through handholds in the cracks. And Sardis was taken 
Sardis fell because they weren't watchful, because they were not aware of their situation. And uh, for interest, this is exactly how Robert the Bruce took Edinburgh Castle from the English in 1314. Now, if any church thinks it's secure and becomes complacent like the Sardians, then they should take warning from the words that Paul once wrote to Corinth. So if you think you're standing firm, take heed, be careful that you don't fall. Only by ongoing repentance and faith in Christ do we have any ground to believe that we are secure. Now, just a few words to conclude. Jesus commends the minority. We've already noted many things about this minority as we compared them to the majority. First of all, we know that they had not soiled their clothes. They had not, there was no pollution about their Christian profession. They had not compromised the gospel by resorting to self-righteousness or justification in their works, uh, by their works as the majority had done. They held fast to the great truth of righteousness with God through the blood of the Lamb. And for that reason, Jesus says, they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. And on what grounds do we stand before Christ today, before God? Is it on the merits of what we have done? We think maybe we're decent so-called human beings. Or is it on the merits of Jesus Christ alone and the work on the cross on your behalf? But they had not only not sawed their clothes, they had acknowledged and witnessed to Christ before men. And so this was no ritual profession. This was from the heart. They showed that they had a living relationship with the Saviour. So for that reason, they will walk with Christ. Just as God used to walk in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. So Christ says, these will walk with me in paradise. And they are also secure in Christ. Their names are written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. And because of that, they will... They will overcome in places like Sardis. Friends, if our names are in the book of life, then we will conquer like this overcoming minority of the Sardian church. But we can say this, if we have no desire to stand up for Christ in difficult and compromising circumstances, then we have no reason to believe that our name is in his book. And just like in his parables, Here Jesus uses what you might call a sorting call to distinguish between those who are truly his and those who are not. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In conclusion, let me ask, could it be that your life is not complete in the sight of God? How is mine? Is my life? Are there any key elements missing from our Christian profession? Well, today, if if you're not a Christian and you're depending on your approval before God on your good deeds of, for example, neighbourliness or whatever, then know this, that you're depending upon soiled, filthy garments in God's sight. The only way to be sure is to depend completely on what Jesus has done for you through the cross. If you'd like to know more about this, then perhaps, uh, perhaps by having someone read the Bible with you, Please do get in touch with us through the email info at charlottechapel.org. We'll be delighted to help you understand better what Jesus has done for you. If you are a Christian, perhaps your life is seriously lacking key elements because perhaps you're not living a lifestyle dedicated to your Saviour or testifying to others of his grace in your life. Again, there are courses available like Discipleship Explored or the Gospel-Centred Life, which can help you to get on track. 
In whatever category we are, it's always good to check that we are fully awake to where we should be with God. I remember when, uh, when I was a young boy, visiting the train station in my town, that whenever a train came into the station, there'd be someone who'd walk along the side of that train on the tracks with a hammer, checking all the wheels. And if the wheel gave a, the wrong sound when it was hit by the hammer, it was an indication there was a, there was a key uh, fault, a fundamental flaw with, with that wheel. It's good to check, or de- check that we, wherever we are on our Christian journey, it's good to check that there are no fundamental flaws, no key elements missing in our, uh, in our witness to Christ. Let's not be like the church at Sardis. They had compromised their message and they had lost the wonder of the cross. Let's not be like them. Let's pray. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message from the Lord of the Church. Thank you for all of these messages to the churches in Asia Minor, because from each one we have a means of, uh, of auditing our own Christian lives to see where we are before you on what our dependence is based. May we always depend on you for our salvation uh, as we do for all things in life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.